0: Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan, joined by Deirdre Bosa. She is CNBC's host of Tech Check. Debo, welcome back to the pod.
1: As always, very happy to be here.
0: I love that backdrop. I, I love that backdrop at CNBC's One Market there. There you are. You're not sitting up all ready to go like you are on TV. It seems like a podcasting stance that you have there, but it's always interesting. People ask me every time I'm out there and I would do a hit from there, is that like a real backdrop? It is real and it is fabulous. It's not
1: a green screen. You should see my setup, though. The the reason why I'm more casual is cuz i've got like the computer propped up a microphone plugged in so a little less formal but that's why I like doing this with
0: you. This is meant to be audio. It's meant to be casual. Also, I want to hit something here as our team was putting together some notes for this. So you you just started doing this a few weeks ago. And I think we quoted it a couple of weeks ago. This tech check weekly. It's a longer form sort of thing. You take on one topic. It's about 10 minutes. Talk to our listener, our viewer a little bit where they can find that. And what is your goal by doing that? Because obviously you're popping on all day long and doing tech check and, and reporting on stuff. How are you choosing one topic to take on each week and where can people find it?
1: First of all, thank you for mentioning it. It is our small team's passion project. And really, it came about because we were doing these daily segments and we're really trying to answer the why in news, not just give you a headline, but why should you care about this? And there was too much to fit into a five minute Live TV segment. So we said we just have so much more context to add. We have some great interviews. There's been some great people already on CNBC talking about this. So let's do a deep dive on what we think is the most important story in tech of the week. And we've just found that we learned so much doing it, and it's so valuable to people who watch CNBC, but maybe drop in, right? Like in the middle of the game. To know what the score is. We take a step back and we say, here's the game that's being played, and here's what you need to know about it, so that when you hear us talking about it on CNBC in sound bites, you'll understand how to put that in context. So we just started doing this ourselves. They're getting better. And this week we're gonna look at the Timo effect. Last week we looked at these crazy valuations in artificial intelligence. And also it's interesting because Dan, where you operate, right, is and CNBC operates is the public market. And over the last few months, we've really seen some of the air come out of these mega cap names, but we put it in context and said, listen, in the private space, there's just no no stopping this bubble.
0: No, no doubt. We're going to hit both of those. Uh, The Timo thing is is really fascinating. A Chinese e-commerce app that's taking the U.S. by storm. And so I can't wait to see that, but I'd love to get a little bit of preview on that. And then also last week's on Anthropic and the private market valuations for some of these kind of AI companies is is really eye-popping. And especially at a time where I know you've been reporting a lot on the IPO market reopening in technology and all these initiations of Arm. You were on CNBC's Fast Money with me last night talking about that a little bit it just seems and sam lesson on last week's was talking about from the information talking about why should the best companies go public when they have all of this funding they have these massively great backers who are giving them the time whereas before listen the whole idea was to exit and then you get the mark to market you get liquidity maybe they like it this way where you don't have to like the marks have been like more of an art than a science over the last five years if you will
1: and so I loved what he said. And that's why we wanted to break that out and really pay attention to it. I was at a conference in Dallas put on by Imran Khan last week. And this was also a hot topic. You had VCs come up and say, we need liquidity events. Companies are staying private for too long. The public can't participate in the upside. It all happens away from them. And there's a select group that's cashing in. And then we had the former CEO of Microsystems, Microsun Systems come on and say, listen, If you are there's nothing more miserable than being a public company CEO, you are essentially a piñata and it is a horrible existence. So those two things are a conflict with each other. The founder would argue, I'd rather stay public for longer. There's ample sources of cash to enable us to do so. But the VC, the investor on the other side, wants their liquidity event. They want them to go public. The public, the average investor, that's an interesting place, because if you think that these companies, especially in AI, are going to be the next trillion dollar companies, or hundreds of billions of dollar companies, you want to participate. You want a piece of that upside. And increasingly, over the last decade, when you've seen so much money in private markets, there's less of a chance to do that.
0: Yeah, I, I guess the one difference about this cycle than past cycles is that a lot of these crossover funds, a, a lot of these like big mutual funds, they have the ability to invest in these companies still in the private markets in growth stages. And therefore, some retail investors are getting you exposure. But it also creates a scenario where the upside to participate, if you're a Stripe and you were a $100 billion valuation, let's say a couple years ago, goes down to 45 Billion at some point post pandemic. At some point it will be again at 100 billion. When it comes out, you might not have this, the, the the upside that you did. So retail, they're not getting the best stuff anymore. It used to be that companies wanted to get out to the capital markets so they could raise some capital, they could give some liquidity, then they could use their stock as a currency to do M and A and increase R and D and all that sort of stuff. So it just seems like if the best companies per Sam, your interview with Sam is going to be that they are going to stay private longer. Another one would be SpaceX. Wouldn't folks have loved to get into SpaceX at fifteen billion dollar valuation, which would have been huge in like nineteen nineties or early two thousands terms or whatever. Now it's in the private markets; it's trading at what one hundred and fifty billion valuation.
1: And his argument too is that it's the trash that is going public. His words, not mine. But instead of a SpaceX, you get a Virgin Galactic, which has done so terrible on the public markets. You're getting a lesser version of it because what SPACs enabled investors to do was sort of when the gravy train met this huge liquidity event and you could just get whatever company out that you wanted to. But that period hopefully is
0: over. No, no doubt about it. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the public markets as you just mentioned. I think it was interesting on CNBC Squawk Box this morning, Paul Tudor Jones, obviously famed hedge fund investor and he's one of those guys when he speaks you have to listen to. He's not always right but he's one of those guys who's been doing it for over four decades and has a tremendous track record and you know, he's talking about the potential for a recession in Q1. He thinks that we're going to be in a recession at some point in Q1 and that stocks usually drop on average about 12% prior to a recession really being confirmed, if you will. And so here we are, we're up 13.5% in the year. We know the S&P was down 18% last year. We're still well below the all-time highs that were made. And when I think about just how fast interest rates have gone up over the last couple of months or so. That was one of the reasons that caused the S&P to dip about 8% at its lows last week, the NASDAQ. Similarly, but interestingly enough, Debo, like on a day like today, so we're recording this on Tuesday, about two o'clock or so, I have an S&P that's up 80 basis points. I have a NASDAQ 100 only up 70 basis points. You don't see that often. Why? That Magnificent 7 makes up about 40% of the NASDAQ 100, only 25% of the S&P 500. And on the day, Apple is down. Microsoft is down. Google is up 50 basis points. So I think that's an interesting dynamic where rates have come in. The rest of the stock market has rallied because of that. But the large NASDAQ names that make up a disproportionate of the weight and a lot of the expected earnings growth are down in the day. So you're seeing money rotate out of those to broaden out a little bit. Thoughts on that dynamic here? Because if the stock market, let's say, were to drop 12% from here because the economy is going to be in a recession, as Paul Tudor Jones thinks that it be early next year to me you're gonna need these mega cap tech stocks to lead to the downside because many sectors whether it be retail industrial utilities transports banks they're all down 10 or so from their 52 week highs which signals a correction and tech stocks many of these are still down 10 but they are up a lot more and a lot more in market cap terms too
1: And I wonder if that's partly investors just taking profit from the beginning of this year because, Dan, maybe you can explain something to me, but we seem to take it as a given that when interest rates are rising, you sell out of tech because tech is riskier than some of the other sectors in the S&P 500. But that's changed because tech, at least mega cap tech, are some of the most profitable companies in America. So that dynamic breaks down, right? The whole idea of interest rates hitting future profitability i understand how that works but these companies are profitable right now you don't want profits in the future you want them now so you're not buying unprofitable tech but that's not what the magnificent seven are they are some of the most profitable with the best balance sheets right now so i think that this dynamic will come back into play like we saw earlier this year they're the defensive they're better defensive than what we typically or historically have thought of as defensive.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And and you and I talked about this, I think a couple of weeks ago on the pod, is that all these companies, also these huge cash balances that generate billions of cash a quarter, right? And then we know they buy back a lot of their stock, but they were e- uh, able to refinance a lot of debt at very low rates. And now those cash balances that many investors thought were just, uh, just like a, really a drag on these companies, right? When interest rates were really low, now they're earning 5% on those huge cash balances. So to your point about safety and defensiveness, my only pushback is that these companies also trade at valuations that many of them, you know, an Apple and a Microsoft have not consistently traded at, at a high 20s sort of PE. And therefore we've seen a lot of multiple expansion in and around a lot of excitement about advanced technologies, obviously AI and how they're gonna integrate them, not Apple less so obviously, but more maybe spatial computing and the like at a time where iPhone growth is really moderating. like to be very clear. So the valuations are a little stretched. Maybe it's deserved, maybe it's not. But I wanna make one last point, is that Pepsi was trading at 27 times earnings about four or five months ago, okay? It was trading at an all time high and it just sold off 20 some percent. And now it trades just above a market multiple. So at a cheapest valuation it has in a while. So just for anyone who thinks that these stocks can't sell off and see multiple compression, even as Pepsi just reported this morning, they beat raised, like they didn't even guide down or anything. So the fundamentals are fine, but you did have the stock sell off and you did have multiple compression. And that can happen in some of your most favorite tech names.
1: But I would argue it already has, Dan. It already has happened. The last few months have been rough for mega cap tech. And if you look at another sort of valuation metric, PEG ratios, right, price to earnings growth. These stocks, the mega caps, they're cheap again. They've already seen this re-rating. And there was a chart from Goldman that we mentioned a bunch of times on TV But just shows that mega cap tech has only been this cheap about five times in the last decade and i don't think they've been this cheap in about five years because we have seen them sell off but then it's not just that their stock price has come down their earnings expectation has gone up if you look at the analyst estimates on wall street so at this moment where all of a sudden you can say that they look cheap again, I think. So
0: this is where I disagree, right? So if you look at S&P consensus for earnings in 2024, they're up 12%. And when you think about where the dollar is, you think where commodities are, you think about where interest rates are, you think about just what Paul Tudor Jones just said about the potential for um, a recession, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, put a statement out this morning talking about really slower growth the world over and really they're talking a little bit about uh, plenty of these geopolitical hotspots but higher inflationary or just higher inflationary readings you know when you think about what's going on in the middle east what could go on in china what's going on in europe if you do have a global recession at a time that a lot of these geopolitical events are causing you know more inflation for reshoring and the like and then if you couple that with less demand at a time where lots of fiscal budgets were, were really there to buoy consumers to buoy corporations and they start moving towards other things like geopolitical events and you do have a slowdown in demand that all those estimates for 2024 are going to look really high and that's how you have a sell-off in Apple or Microsoft if you have enterprise demand weakening at a time where they've cut lots of costs as a way of headcount and the like here if they see less demand then you're going to see those multiples contract more that's just simple math in my opinion but it's not there right now and you know the story of the market over 20 2023 is the push out of recession. The doomsayers about the global economy have been proven wrong right now. And listen, many of these billionaire hedge fund managers are are in that group, not just like talking heads like myself who have podcast mics, you know what I mean? So again, let's see what Q3 results give us and Q4 guidance and visibility into next year, because I think that will be a big determinant on valuations, in my opinion.
1: Fair point. I don't always trust Wall Street earnings estimates because a lot has happened over the last few days that could throw all of that into question. So fair point.
0: Cross River Bank member FDIC. Let's talk about what you're working on right now for this Tech Check Weekly with Timu, because this is something that I think a lot of our listeners might not have heard much about. I know that you've always had an eye on Asia and Asia tech. I know you spent a lot of time over there, but there was some great charts that you were circulating or that Wall Street has been circulating about the Timu effect. Will you explain this a little bit to us? And what should U.S. investors and I guess consumers, what should they be focused on here? Because to me, this is a story that I hadn't heard a lot about until recently, until you started reporting on it.
1: Yeah. So the Timu effect is this idea that Chinese e-commerce apps like Timu, Shein is another one. They're so cheap. They offer a ton of discounts. They don't necessarily deliver the fastest, but they have such a compelling platform that basically gamifies the act of e-commerce shopping. They're making such gigantic inroads into the U.S. Morgan Stanley estimates that 15 percent of American consumers have used Timu. That is just a staggering number when you consider that this app only launched just over a year ago. It's hard to understate just how big of an effect they've had. And that's why you see a lot of Wall Street try to figure out what that impact is. It's not just Amazon, it's dollar stores, it's eBay, it's ThreadUp. it's even PayPal, the payments apps, because the impact of them has been so large. And I find it fascinating, especially on a week like this week when we have Amazon's prime day, you have copycats from Target and Walmart, et cetera, et cetera. They have, you know, a few days where they say, Come to our site, come shopping, get your holiday shopping early. We're gonna offer some great discounts. The Chinese apps like Timu, they don't even bother. Every single day is a discount day. And Their strategy is very different than an Amazon. The Amazon website hasn't changed very much in the last 10 years. Hasn't even changed that much from when Jeff Bezos first launched it. When you go on Timu, it's this whole new experience where you're asked to play a game, not shop for something as soon as you land on the site or app asked to spin a wheel. That wheel, depending on what it lands on, will give you $200 to spend or it'll give you $100 in coupon. It gives you something to keep you coming back and something to draw you into that ecosystem in a similar way that TikTok drew a lot of American users into its ecosystem by just keeping them on the site. So there's a lot of anxiety over what that's going to do to our own American e-commerce sites, which I find fascinating. And the last piece of this I find fascinating. It's just the geopolitical implications of this is that lawmakers are looking at TikTok when she and and Timu have just been storming the American consumer.
0: Yeah, and what's fascinating, there's two things that I want to hit on here because when you think about it, our e-commerce companies, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. they are not in China, okay? So like that is a, a really interesting, so this seems like low-hanging fruit. If we start to see U.S. retailers being negatively impacted by this sort of like discount experience from China, that seems like an easy one. And the other point is, and I know you follow retail here, we've heard no shortage of consumers facing companies in the U.S. talk about trade down, that's been going on for a year, this slippage or shrinkage I guess you're calling shrinkage, which is theft that's going on in bricks and mortar and now the GLP-1s, these weight loss drugs, you know, weighing on, so a lot of these things so if you think about this, and we just had today, this came out in the last hour or two, so we know that there's been pressure on the low end there's been some trepidation of lower end consumers, we just saw LVMH, the most luxurious brand on the planet, multiple brands uh, on the planet just released numbers that were less than expected. So you're seeing on the very high end a weakening of demand, and they're talking about a path to return to growth. So all that's really interesting to me at a time where, yes, U.S. consumers would benefit from all of these sorts of gamification and, and a lot of these discounting that would come from China, but it just seems like this is going to be squarely, I, I guess, in lawmakers' sites here, especially as they've been focused on TikTok for years.
1: It's shocking that it's not already in their sites. But you're right; it, the timing couldn't be more perfect for these apps. It's when consumers are looking for a discount, when they're hearing, you know, that a recession is on the horizon. It's offering them. All of that and more. And it's just not your typical e-commerce app. In the way that Robinhood had confetti, it wasn't really about trading certain stocks. It was just about getting that confetti to rain down. Timu has a literal wheel of fortune offering you discounts and goods. So it's an interesting strategy. You have to wonder the stuff on there, as far as I can tell, such junk that if consumers get tired of it after they keep shopping. But if you do use China and see what's happened there, how quickly. Atimu, which is owned by Pinduoduo, was able to crack Alibaba's dominance pretty scary prospect for our e-commerce players.
0: Yeah. And one last thing on the retail front here before we we move on, but Amazon, the stock was making new 52-week highs in mid-September, sold off fairly quickly, 15% or so. What was interesting to me is that back in early August, when the company reported Q2 results and gave Q3 Outlook, one of the bright spots really was retail and their margins in retail. And the stock had a big gap, if you remember, filled in the gap over the next couple of weeks. I think the stock opened up six, seven, Percent or something like that, and then went on to make a new high. and I think that some of the excitement in around what they were doing with AI, but it wasn't until the stock went and round tripped all of that where they announced that anthropic investment. And so, let me ask you this because I know you've been reporting a a lot on this, and I think I I saw you on CNBC Tech Check last week, and it was in your expanded weekly talking about the valuations as you just referenced there. But after Amazon, and you and I talked about a couple weeks ago, a whole host of reasons it looked like a brilliant deal, not just from an investment standpoint, but just as far as access to AWS with Anthropic, the use of their chips and the training on the trips and everything like that. But then a week or so later, Anthropic, at least it's being reported on, they're looking to raise another $2 billion and Google might lead that round. How is this going to play out if, if Amazon and Google are, are ping-ponging back and forth with Anthropic? Because we know that, that Google had already invested in Anthropic prior to Amazon.
1: It raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? I don't know how that all turns out, but it raises questions as to how Anthropic is going to manage those strategic partners. And it's not as straightforward as a Microsoft OpenAI. That's an exclusive relationship. Anthropic is going to have to decide which cloud service to use, who to give its tools to. So maybe that's why it didn't have the sort of pump that you might have expected for an Amazon or Google. And also, I think that part of that is we're looking for sort of the killer consumer apps still. A lot of the stuff that's out there, it's really interesting. And you can see how this is going to change the landscape of businesses. But we haven't seen a really compelling app yet that changes everything. And so maybe investors are waiting and seeing.
0: It's interesting, and then last thing, just on valuations there, going back to the conversation that we had about a Stripe or a SpaceX or some of these companies that are literally been afforded the ability, maybe by the voting structure and the founders owning good chunks of these sorts of things, but these companies raising so much money at such an early stage, right? When you think about it, at just these staggering, eye-popping events. Look at how OpenAI, listen, when they started raising that initial Microsoft investment from a few years ago, this was before there was really any commercialized sort of product right there, and it seemed like maybe a reasonable valuation. But now, Anthropic raising billions that at just skipping up five, ten, twenty billion valuation. How do they grow into these valuations? Stripe is a different story, you know what I mean? This is a company that you know you can model. There's some public comps and everything. There aren't too many pure play comps that you can look at, certainly not in the public markets right now. So, is this going to be a problem as we think about? A bubble clearly emerging. And when I say bubble, it doesn't have to be like this really negative thing. There is clearly unusual investment interest at valuations that normally wouldn't make any sense. And we've seen these hype cycles before. I just can't imagine it ends particularly well.
1: I would agree with you first on the idea that a bubble can keep inflating for a very long time. I don't know where it all leads. And I've asked so many people in the space, from founders to venture capitalists, where does this lead? How do you ultimately get revenue that is going to justify the kind of valuation that we're seeing. Nobody knows. All they know is that this is a race and you need as many researchers, as much of the technology as possible on your side if you're going to have a chance in this race. And so right now, few, not very many people that I spoke to in the technology world, are looking at the applications they're just looking at the researchers and the technology and making a bet on that and hoping and hoping with a good reason that follows but as you said we looked at the valuations and anthropic and open ai on evaluation to sales ratio it's far more expensive than an nvidia that's also why you see a lot of different companies startups and mega cap alike racing to develop their own chips because such an expensive part of this is the compute power and so you need to bring that down first
0: we saw that out of Microsoft. They're working on some chips also. And and again, it seems every day I hear uh, or read a new story about how NVIDIA is very aware of the competition with many of you know their customers, which I think is really interesting. That doesn't make for a great scenario. Last thing on this front before we get out of here, there's an article in the information this morning. Tesla builds a new home for Dojo supercomputer as its AI ambitions rise. And I think this is really interesting. We've talked a lot about Tesla. And over the last year, one thing that is very clear, to me, okay? And I get it that electric vehicles have this expanding pie here, right? So that means that Tesla, which has over 50% market share he- here in the US, their market share is likely to go lower. But what they're trying to do is get to a mass market 25 30,000 sort of car, which is basically the average here in the US or get near the average in China. We know that 50% of their production is happening in China also at a time where that is very competitive over there. But they've seen their margins importantly go from 25 percent auto margins down to, let's say, high teens right now, which looks more in line with traditional ICE manufacturers here. So my only point is that their automotive part of this company at least is under pressure right now. We saw that China data about deliveries there down 11 percent in this last period just recorded. So they're going all in on AI, which will actually benefit their full self-driving vision for their cars here, which will ultimately be the thing where they make all the money justifying an $800 billion market cap or wherever people see it going. How do you see this being built internally? And do you think that this is something that is just a kind of capture on the hype at a time where maybe their automotive story, it's still great, but it may not justify the valuation of the company and you have to set your sights on something a little Sexier and that would be Dojo right now.
1: So I I really take the other side of this. I hear you, I hear many others talk about these margins and how it's that gap between them and the traditional ice manufacturers is narrowing. However, this to me has never been a car company. It is a technology company. I believe that. And I think it was so interesting that Adam Jonas at Morgan Stanley interviewed him many, many times in the past. He considered it a car company for a long time. And with Dojo, he said, hold on. Never mind. It's a tech company and kind of the sky's the limit now. And I go back to in the pandemic when the traditional manufacturers were struggling to get enough chips and Elon Musk was able to say, "Okay, we're going to develop our own chips or tweak them here or there so that we're not subject to that shortage. That's the key. Maybe dojo doesn't make sense. Maybe it's too much hype and it's too ambitious. But the fact that they're developing technology, their own supercomputer puts them just so many miles ahead, puts them in a different lead than the traditional auto manufacturers. And going back to our AI conversation, you may not know the final application of it, but you do know that there's something happening here that cars are becoming computers on wheels. And the only one treating them like that, really and truly, is Elon Musk. The other ones are working, they're partnering with other companies and they're trying to do it. But, you know, Elon Musk is really doing it in a more pure form in my opinion.
0: Yeah. And I guess to put a bow on this whole conversation is that public market investors are affording Elon Musk the ability to do all of this. And and so I could make the argument that, yeah, the goalposts keep shifting, right? As the story shifts, because we know that 90 some percent of their revenue comes from selling cars. Okay. That's just a fact. Okay. And the valuation, if that's the business on paper, doesn't make any sense. But if investors are willing to give him the latter, to do that, which actually might speak to why the Collison should get that Stripe public or SpaceX should go public. Because if great founders are going to be afforded that both in the private markets and the public markets, then I would also make the argument that Tesla being a publicly traded company is great for their brand. It's something that many investors get exposed to and from a consumer standpoint. And so I think Stripe would benefit from being a publicly traded company. Stripe would get spoken about every day on CNBC but it doesn't because there's no ticker listed at the NASDAQ or the NYSE or something like that. So I think there's a lot of arguments and lots of venture investors think that companies should go public much earlier in their life cycles. It just, you know, yes, lots of companies fail and it's really hard to be a publicly traded CEO because like to your point, you feel like a pinata most of the times, but the ones that are truly successful over the long term have been public for a long time.
1: Yeah. And they get real time feedback. I think recently one investor talked about how Facebook went public at a time and it was really hard for them as they were trying to transition to a mobile platform. But being a public company really just lit that fire under them to go out and do that. And they got real time feedback from their investors and that can really pay off. That can be a good thing for a company to stay on top and develop and, and move urgently.
0: Yeah. And, and one last thing before we get out of here, really appreciate your time. Guy and I actually spoke with uh, Chris Miller. He's the author of Chip War. You've probably heard many investors and entrepreneurs talk about this book. It was released late last year as the fight for the world's most critical technology. It's about the history of the semiconductor industry going back you know, 70, 80 years. It's a fascinating read. Uh, I'm actually almost done with it, but we had a great conversation with Chris Miller that's in the feed. And I just want to remind our listeners right now to the first 100 people that leave a review for OK Computer in the podcast store, screenshot it, send it to Amanda Diaz at contact at riskreversal.com. We will send you a free book. Um, it's a great, great book. So check that one out. But my point about that was like in the history of the semiconductor industry, going back to Fairchild and, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on of the companies, these great innovative companies in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Some of those had a really hard time being in the public eye where when you're developing new technologies, sometimes it's easier not focused on quarter to quarter margins and earnings and the like here and really doing big things in the private markets and that's a theme that is throughout chip war throughout decades of development in the industry everybody go do that we'll send you a book here debo really appreciate you being back hope to see you next week check out tech check weekly i think it's on youtube it's on their twitter feed and the like and follow debo on the twitter she's doing great work so we really appreciate you being here deirdre
1: thank you dan that was always a pleasure